Hey guys, and welcome to, to De Facto. This is a podcast where we'll cover science topics from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Amelia. And I'm Ju'i. And today, instead of thinking about our predicted grades, we'll be talking about organ transplants. So, we thought to begin with, we'd talk a bit about the history of organ transplantation. This is actually a fairly recent phenomenon in science. The first kidney transplant was performed in 1902 with animals at the, with the Vienna Medical School. In 1909, the first kidney transplant in a human was performed. This involved the surgeon inserting slices of rabbit kidney into a child in France. Although initially it seemed that the transplant has, had been a success and the kidneys actually started functioning, two weeks later the um, child died. And then moving forward about 50 years or so to 1954, this was when the first ever successful kidney transplant took place. So it was performed by um, Joseph Murray at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. And the transplant happened from one twin to another. So because at this point in time, there were no immunosuppressive um, medicines that were used to help prevent organ rejection, the fact that the um, genetic code of the twins was identical uh, minimised the risk of organ rejection. That's so cool, but also I can't really imagine like giving, like it must have been so surreal to think, especially since organ transplants were so new, to suddenly say, oh, I'm going to give my sibling a transplant. I'm going to give my sibling a part of myself. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a risky operation, especially as there were no um, immunosuppressants at the time. And then later in 1983, the first immunosuppressant was introduced to treat organ rejection. So this was cyclosporine. And the way this drug works was essentially it reduces the ability of accessory cells, um, like your epithelial cells, to produce interleukins, um, which results in decreased replication of helper T cells and killer T cells. So your interleukins are proteins that mediate communication between cells. And the name was coined in the late 1970s um, from inter meaning between and leukins coming from leukocytes, your white blood cells, because when they were initially observed, it was thought that they were only um, expressed by um, immune cells. However, it was later discovered that actually a large range of cells produce these interleukins to mediate communications. However, they are very prominent in white blood cells. I was just thinking this is finally one example where science actually names things that make sense, but it turns out that it was wrong after all. Yeah, I guess it made sense originally, um, but maybe not in the long term. Um, but anyways, that's what your interleukins do. And then these interleukins reduce the reproduction of helper T cells, which are chemical messages which kind of give instructions to your immune cells. So they help the killer T cells and the B cells to replicate, replicate essentially kind of building up an army to fight infection. 
and then your killer T cells are what actually kind of find and destroy the infected cells. So killer T cells have T cell receptors on their surface, which bind to foreign antigens on the infected cell, like might be found on cells in the donated organ. And when these T cell receptors bind to the antigens, they release cytotoxins, which um, subsequently kill the cell. So the reduction in immune reaction caused by this cyclosporine uh, reduces the amount of killer T cells, which reduces the risk of rejection and reduces the risk of the immune system attacking the new organ. So now we thought we'd talk a bit about so why waiting for organ transplants takes so long. So it's estimated that in the US, 20 patients die every day awaiting an organ transplant. And in the UK, um, in the year ending March 2020, the um, number of deceased donors had fallen from 1,584, uh, sorry, sorry, from 1,600 the previous year to 1,584. And furthermore, the instance of non-proceeding deceased donors increased by 6% from 678 the year before to 719. And furthermore, the average waiting time for a kidney is around three years long, which is a pretty long time. So what's the reasons for this delay in receiving organ transplants? Well, one of the primary reasons is a shortage of organs. So not everybody is signed up for organ donation. In the UK, it's around 25 million people. Furthermore, organ donors have to die in the right way, as it were, in the right settings. So this might be in A&E or in intensive care, where the organs can be quickly and safely harboured. Yeah, and I feel like the case with a lot of organs is that it's only the case, I think, with kidney cell, um, kidneys, where you can kind of live with one. With all your other organs, you would have to be, um, you would have to be not living for your organs to be donated to someone else. I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so yeah, kidneys is an example of where living donation can happen, but for a lot of these, you have to wait for the donor to die, and even when they die, there still is a possibility that the organ can't be used because it's been damaged or, as I mentioned earlier, the patient hasn't died in the right setting. So, secondly, if no match is found, the organs are wasted. So, matching an organ depends on a variety of things, including blood type, body size, the severity of the condition, and the distance between the donor's hospital and the patient's hospital. Everybody has a blood type. This might be A, B, AB, or O. With the blood type A, the blood cells have A antigens on the outside, and they produce anti-B antibodies. And this means that those with a blood type of A can only donate organs to those with a blood type of A or AB, and can only receive organs from a blood type of A or O. So in organ transplantation, AB is known as the universal recipient as it can receive organs from 
any donor. And this is because it has both A and B antigens, but it has no antibodies. And similarly with O, O is known as the universal donor because it has no antigens, but has anti-A and anti-B antibodies. I always thought it was really cool that there were different blood types because I know that my parents, like my mom is A and O and my dad is B and O. So technically I could have been any blood type and I was complaining to my mom the other day because I said I could have been any blood type, but why am I A? Like, I, I don't know. I just had this concept that A was like less superior because you can only take and receive from certain things. But actually, I think like the different... It's just a one way of classification, I guess. It's very interesting, and this, um, and this is a very important first step for matching donor to recipient. However, even if even if these match, there is still a chance of rejection. And so, another reason why organs might be wasted is because they don't last very long once they've been um, harvested from the donor. For example, heart and lungs only last for about four to six hours, whereas kidneys last long, longer from 24 to 36 hours. And so there are a couple of other measures of kind of matching organs in different organs. So, for example, in the liver, they have the model for end-stage liver disease or the paediatric end-stage liver disease um, scale. And... This kind of determines the severity of the patient's condition and therefore prioritises who receives the treatment and who doesn't receive the liver. Similarly, to match a kidney, there has to be a negative lymphocytotoxic crossmatch and no of the HLA antigens for the match to be successful. Yeah, so just a bit more on that, we thought we would expand on this. So, do you ever think why your immune cells don't just attack your other body cells? Well, actually, your immune cells know that your body cells are you through protein markers on their surface, known as human leukocyte antigens, or HLA. So how does this work? Well, you inherit half each from your parents, so you have 10 HLAs in total, 5 are from your dad and 5 are from your mom. And this is why in transplants, you usually preferentially test for your siblings because your similarity from your parents is kept at 50%, as in you will only have you know half of your father's or half of your mother's, but it could be higher in your siblings. Like for example, you could have a 100% match. So the best thing is of course a full match, and this is most likely in siblings. But if not, you would do a half match, which is more commonly the case, and this is called a haploidentical transplant. So even though you have a half match with your parents, if you also have a half match with your siblings, it's more likely for the doctors to choose your sibling for the transplant just because your siblings are younger and therefore have less complications. But honestly, I can't imagine asking anyone for a transplant. Like, it's so crazy to think about. Yeah, it must just be really scary kind of um, volunteering a donor, uh, an organ as a living donor. Yeah, that brings up a really good point. So actually, for most of what I'm talking about currently, it does usually apply to things like bone marrow transplants. 
so that's what um, human leukocyte antigens are most commonly talked about in. But the thing is, the complications that arise from having um, unidentical human leukocyte antigens, as in even the case where you have 50%, is that you may get graft-versus-host disease. So what is this? Well, it's um, it, what happens is your body cells have, as, as previously um, talked about, your body cells have human leukocyte antigens. And if they recognize these as foreign, as they would if you had a transplant, then your body cells might attack these. So let's, get, let's go with the example of bone marrow transplants. Actually, GVHD happens very commonly in bone marrow transplants. It happens in 60 to 80% of cases if the donor is not a related, and that's exceedingly high. So what happens? Well, bone marrow transplants involve stem cells that produce blood cells because you, the function of your bone marrow is to produce blood cells. So when these are produced, these blood cells have the markers of your donor. So then these, it's the case of these cells recognizing your cells as foreign and attacking them. So there are two types of GVHD, which is graft-versus-host disease. One is called acute and one is chronic. So acute is sudden and chronic is long-term. So this leads to lots of complications. So complications common to both of them include rashes, yellow discoloration of skin or eyes, and for acute, you get things like nausea and diarrhea, whereas for chronic, you have things like difficulty swallowing and fatigue. However, just to make a note, this list is not exhaustive. Please do not self-diagnose. And just because you have symptoms doesn't mean you have graft-versus-host disease, especially if you have not had a transplant. Okay, so let's keep going and let's make a note about the current technology that we are developing because we want to make sure that people can get organ transplants as quickly as possible, especially given the long waiting time and throughout the waiting time people are suffering and we want to minimize that. So what is going on right now? Well, currently they've developed two new methods of storing organs. So previously what, is, what was conventionally used was cold storage. And what that meant was that you would freeze transplant organs until you match them with transplant patients. However, these brought complications, like early allograft dysfunction, which basically means that in the early stages of the transplant, it doesn't perform its full function, and this causes, I'm going to have fun produce, um, pronouncing this, ischemic cholangiopathy in livers, which is another complication that involves a lack of blood flow and causes bowel duct damage. So in case you didn't know, your bowel is something that's produced in your liver and it basically emulsifies fats, which means that their surface area becomes bigger so digestion happens more easily. Thank you, GCSE Science. Um, in any case, there's a new method now and it involves storing the organ with warmth and blood supply. So this has been tested and it's reduced incidence of both of the above complications, which is really promising news. It also makes more hearts available for transplant, for example, because as previously mentioned, some are really discarded because they've been out of the body for a long time. But the problem with this new heating technology is that it's not really a long-term thing. It's more like, for instance, if someone died in the morning, you would take out their organs, you would heat them, and then they, you would store them while you bring them to the patient who needs them, and then in the afternoon, you would have this transplant. So this would be stored for about up to 10 hours. However, this isn't as much as a problem because, as Amelia has previously said, there are so many people waiting for transplants. Yeah, I was just going to say that even just this short period of extending the life of the organ by, say, 10 hours, I assume that could make a really huge difference, especially if the organ only has a lifespan of kind of four to six hours. If you then elongate it, it gives 
much more time, I guess, to find a match and to allow the organ to travel further and, I guess, prep the patient for the surgery. Okay, so, yeah, and I think it's really been helpful because any increase that we're able to make is definitely a positive one. So, actually, the first time... This is really, really recent technology, and the first time a heart transplant occurred with this technology in Asia was done in Hong Kong in May 2020, which is a month ago, and it's so crazy that we are really on the forefront of this kind of technology. But another technology that's really come up recently is this thing called supercooling. And... Supercooling is really cool. It's this instance where, okay, for example, right, if you have a newly bought bottle of water, um, it has to be a newly bought bottle like from the store. If you put it in the freeze- freezer, you don't touch it, and it's pure water. You can take it out, and it would still be a liquid, but when you touch it, it will instantly become frozen. And this is what supercooling is. So what is the problem with the heating method I described just now? Well, heating doesn't negate the problem of distance. But this is changing because researchers have developed a supercooling method where the organ, as I previously mentioned, isn't frozen, even though it's at really cold temperatures, and this allows storage for a day and a half. So it's cooled to negative 4 degrees by perfusing it with chemicals and removing air so that no ice crystal can form with water vapour in the air. So currently it's been done in livers when supplanted, and when supplanted with blood, the liver actually makes bile, which is, as previously described, one of its functions, as it would have. It can't be done indefinitely, but it definitely increases storage time and it allows organs to be transported over longer distances. And we're hoping that this um, technology can also be used with hearts and kidneys. Actually, they've tried it in livers because livers are the hardest because they're the biggest and therefore it's filled, they are filled, filled with air, so the technique is really difficult. But since it's even been successful in livers, we can infer that it would also be successful in hearts and kidneys. And now the final kind of technology is chimeric mice. So do you know what a chimera is? I guess my image of a chimera is this kind of Greek mythological creature. Further to that, I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely a Greek mytho- mythological creature. So you're definitely right in that. It's actually a fire-breathing hybrid with the head of a lion, a head of a goat from its back, and a tail ending in snake's head. Well, in modern scientific terms though, a chimera is any organism that's made of cells of more than one organism. And scientists have created one. But don't panic. Because actually, research in this has been going on for a long time. Why? Because researchers intend to combat the problem. One of the ways that researchers intend to combat the problem of organ transplantation and insufficient organs is to grow human organs in animals. However, this does have ethical concerns, which is why it's one of the many ways that are being explored. But something that's really exciting is that recently researchers have managed to get mice because that have 4% human cells. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but actually previously the highest percentage was 0.1%. So just as a small digression here, there's a lot of instances where mice are used in labs, but I guess I was curious as to why, so I looked it up. And actually we use mice because they are small, they reproduce quickly, and they're really tame, which means that they don't, you know, like, bite researchers. Like, imagine doing research on tigers. And furthermore, they have genetic characteristics that are similar to humans, which is why it's really beneficial for us, because we have even more ethical objections to experimenting on humans. So at least using mice 
um, is able to subvert some of these problems. So what did the researchers do? Well, they injected 10 human embryonic cells into three-day-old mice blastocysts. Blastocysts are basically, um, so originally all life starts out as one singular cell called a zygote, and then when it divides after 3.5 days, it forms a blastocyst. So the suggested reason for why researchers have never been able to do this is because mouse cells are actually more naive than human stem cells. So when you inject human stem cells, they don't work. So they did revert these human stem cells that they used this time into an earlier form, which allowed them to actually do this experiment. Now, if you still have um, worries about these chimera, that's definitely valid. I think it's a bit crazy to think about how some cells might actually contain human cells, but they're not actually in humans. But these chimera don't exist anymore. They were destroyed after 17 days. So the hope is that eventually people will be able to genetically engineer animals to not produce specific organs so that these organs are produced by human cells. For example, if we were able to genetically engineer a cow to not have a stomach, for example, although that's not a good example because cows have four, but if we were able to do that, then the production of a stomach eventually in a cow would be by human cells because we've given it the human stem cells. Still, this is definitely disturbing and concerning on ethical grounds as well as just it's crazy to think about, so it's definitely still a work in progress. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I guess the main concern with the chimeric mice is the ethical concerns, but as a kind of advancing technology, it sounds really exciting and really promising. Another aspect that's been being looked into a lot recently kind of combats this uh, these ethical ideas and this is organoids so organoids are 3d multicellular cultures that incorporate some of the key features that are represented in organs and they are made from human cells so because the, they cause no harm to the humans themselves there is much less ethical concern with them so they can either be made from by generating pluripotent stem cell derived organism, uh, organoids and pluripotent stem cells are kind of like the master of stem cells. They can divide into a multitude of different, they can differentiate rather into a multitude of different types of cells, which makes them super useful in this technology to create characteristics of the desired organ. So. One way of culturing these pluripotent stem cell derived organ organoids is to kind of not give them any differentiation um, instructions, but instead give them the right growth conditions and nutrients to allow intrinsic self-organization. And for example, this can be used uh, with brain cells, where they'll take um, a small sample of brain cells and culture it to uh, kind of resemble a variety of different brain structures. Another way is the cells can be um, patterned towards more specific structures. For example, if they were aiming for a specific structure in the brain. And the other way of making organoids is through adult stem cell derived organoids. And here, um, the growth conditions are replicated um, or kind of imitate that of what it's like when um, tissues repair themselves in your body. So the benefit of using organoids for kind of treatments is that because they come from your own cells, there is no risk of rejection.
at the moment they're still in their early stages of kind of research so whilst they're not used for any kind of organ transplantation yet they can be used to test the efficacy of drugs so for example they're currently being developed um, to make more personalized cancer treatments where scientists can extract kind of samples of the cancer cells and observe how, how they grow and how they react to different very expensive drugs that sounds so exciting and it really sounds like this technology is going to be able to subvert most of our concerns with the current things, the current concerns about organ transplants as well as the ethical grounds of research. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's really exciting, even in its early stages with its potential to test drugs and things. And also this saves a lot of money because testing small amounts of the very expensive drugs um, by testing them, we can actually see if they're going to work or not um, on the patient. And so I thought I'd talk quickly about a research called Hans Cleaver. Now, he started to work um, when he noticed that cells in the intestine regenerate a lot. And by that, I mean surf the surface of the, intest of the human intestine regenerates every two to four days. They noticed this was because of the stem cells and so they isolated stem cells and grew them in the lab. So using this new research he has I guess kind of a vision for the future of organoids which is where potentially there could be a kind of organoid bank created like a bit like a sperm bank where lots of different organoids for different structures and different blood types and things like that can be cultured and when a patient requires a transplant best match for the patient can be found and the idea is that because they are easy and very small there can be lots and lots of different types of organoids so it will be much easier to find a match and then these organoids can then be administered to the patient to replace the stem cells and help regenerate new healthy tissues. So I think this is a really exciting possible future for organ transplantation. Yeah, I definitely agree. It sounds so interesting. And I think it definitely has a very, very strong potential for future organ transplants. Yeah, definitely. So I guess that's where um, the research is at at the moment with organoids. That sounds super cool. So with that we're probably going to end our podcast here. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with more facts that give us a better insight into where research is at at the moment as well as some really promising science for what we're hoping to achieve in the future. Thanks for listening. Bye.